0: Yes, Jesus, you are high and lifted up, you are majestic, you are full, you're not just graceful, you are full of grace and truth. Your name is great, greater than any other name given amongst men, and as we've already proclaimed, that at your name every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess, that you are indeed the Lord of Lord and the King of kings. Father, as I think about that, I am in awe and amazement that in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all that you are, you are still mindful of us. You are still mindful of me. Father, my, my prayer for all of us today is that we do not stand at arm's length from the word that you have for us today, that we see ourselves in this story, this incredible story of redemption and rescue and restoration that you are doing throughout history. Father, I know that your spirit meets each one of us where we are at. I pray that you do that for us today, that you shower us With conviction, condemnation has no place in here. That you shower us with conviction, that you lead us to repentance, that you remind us of the amazing calling and commission and purpose you have for every single one of us. That we were not just created, we were created out of love and for a purpose. So, Father, would you open up our eyes, open up our ears, open up our minds, our hearts to hear and believe and receive what you have for us today. Would you be our teacher today? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Michael Dolan. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Oh, we're doing this again. All right. Thank you. Oh, man, this is good. Anybody else want to bring me anything? I'll wait. I can just. No, I'm, just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Good morning, Trinity. Good morning. good morning. Good morning. For anyone that is new that I haven't met yet, a uh, special welcome to you. My name is David. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors. Here we are uh, sliding into home base today uh, in our current Lenten sermon series that is titled Truly Free. And it is during this series that God's Word is, is teaching us to live in the truth and in the freedom of Jesus Christ, whose life changing good news frees us from, from deception and unfulfillment, from anxiety and from bitterness. And it frees us for abundant life, for contentment and joy. It frees us for peace and forgiveness. And today we are going to study one of my absolute favorite gospel stories. And we're going to see how Jesus frees us from fear and frees us to love. Now, when we talk about fear and love, we bring up two of the most searched words on the internet. We bring up, two words that are used very often but very often misunderstood or used in a way that dilutes their traditional meaning when i talk about fear the working definition that i want to use is is a perceived negative external uncertainty which powerfully controls our actions and the primary object of fear is oneself leading to self-preservation, a perceived negative external uncertainty. I'm not talking about the temporary emotion of being afraid that you might feel watching a a horror movie or something like that. And when we talk about love, the working definition that I want to use is a, a powerful internal act of the will which positively controls all of our actions. The primary object of love is not ourselves, but it is others leading to self-sacrifice. Now, I'm not talking about lust, and I'm not talking about the Hollywood, the fat little naked baby angels that fly around shooting people with heart-shaped arrows. Now, yes, fear and love, they make us feel very different, but in a world that is dominated by feelings, what I want us to see today is how fear and love make us act. And in doing so, we are going to see how the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us from a life of fear and for a life of love. Now, this, I, I, I'm preaching this a little bit differently than I normally do. Normally, I've got my three or four points, and we go through that. This story is so powerful, I'm just going to tell it and draw out some truths that apply to our lives. But to set the table for our scripture today, which is Luke, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. This story is sometimes confused with the anointing of Jesus at Simon the leper's house by Mary, the sister of Lazarus. But that story occurs right before Jesus's crucifixion. This is a different story. This story takes place on the front side of Jesus's ministry. At this point, Jesus, he has has taught in public. He's been teaching in the synagogues. He cleansed the temple. He met with the religious leader, Nicodemus. Uh, He's called his disciples. He's traveled around. He has healed many people. And at at this point, this is when Jesus' impact and and sort of the momentum of his ministry, if I can put it that way, is really starting to build. In fact, a few scenes before what we're going to read in chapter 7, Jesus raises to life a widow's son. And Luke records, he says, They were all filled with awe and praised God, saying, A great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding Country And so word is spreading. His influence is growing. The momentum is building. And again, we know from his meeting with Nicodemus that Jesus was being noticed by the religious leaders. But when the crowds really start to swell and the momentum builds and the impact grows, the religious leaders do a lot more than just simply notice Jesus. And so with that, let's get into God's word. Again, this is Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. I believe it is page 839 in the Bible that's in the pew back in front of you. They will also be on the screen. Verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is for she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, "Simon, I have something to tell you." "Tell me, teacher," he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has perfumed my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, "'Your sins are forgiven.'" The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Heavenly Father, that's one of those stories we could just close and be done. A story that puts on display Jesus' unbelievable powers his incredible grace, his unyielding patience, his love, his mercy, his presence in the moment. Father, this is is one of those stories that it so convicts me of my heart, the way that I see others sometimes, the way that I fail to see myself, the way that you see me. Father, would you, Holy Spirit, again, would it rain down on us the truths contained within this scripture, truths that seek to set us free from a life of fear and set us free for a life of love. In Jesus' name, I beg you. Amen. All right, I'd like to examine the three people we meet in this story. We meet Simon, we meet this woman, and of course we meet Jesus. Let's start with Simon. There is a saying, and we all know it well, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And that is what I think takes place in our story here with Simon. Not necessarily that Jesus has become their enemy, that he's reached enemy status, yet we know he obviously does. But I sort of part ways with several commentators here who think that Simon invited Jesus to dinner to befriend him or had some sort of friendly curiosity about him. We, we attribute that sentiment to Nicodemus, which I think is well-deserved, but I think it is ill-placed here. There are a few normal customs of the time that Simon as a host breaks here, and we'll unpack them in a moment. But the posture of Simon's heart in extending Jesus an invitation here is not a friendly one. In fact, if we back up a chapter in Luke's gospel, we can see this posture among the Pharisees. Jesus is teaching in a synagogue on a particular Sabbath. This is Luke chapter 6, verse 7. It says, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him. Why? To see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Why? so that they might find a reason to accuse him. And look at what verse 8 says. But Jesus, he knew their thoughts. All right, hang on to that for a second. But this is stunning, right? They didn't watch Jesus to celebrate his amazing compassion and healing power. They were watching him to accuse him. Right? That speaks to the posture of their heart. And this is why Simon has no interest in extending to Jesus the cultural norms for a guest of your house. Remember, they lived in a hot, humid, dirty, dusty climate. Sandals, no paved roads. And when you arrived at a host house for dinner, you were greeted with an embrace and a kiss as a sign of respect. You were provided a fragrant oil to freshen up from the day and that all occurred while a slave was washing your feet from the dust and the dirt. The NIV, which we read from, does its best when it says that Jesus was reclining at the table, but it's not entirely accurate, the picture we might have in our head. This here is a, a better picture of it where you can see that they would lean on their, they would gather and lean on their, their left arm and, and take from a, a table in the middle with their right hand in a very communal fashion with their feet you can see extended out behind them and this woman therefore would be away from the table as she was weeping over Jesus's feet she is outside of the discussion she is outside of any attention. She is outside of any affection. She is outside of any fellowship. She is outside of any importance or of any invitation. Simon is at the table. This is the scene, and it is quite a scene. Luke tells us that A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. This is Luke's polite way of telling us that this woman is a prostitute. A woman of the town who lived a sinful life comes with an alabaster jar of perfume. This alabaster is a porous, Stone. uh, She would have filled it with a hardened Crisco like substance that was a fragrant oil. This was a tool of the trade that she wore around her neck. And as one's body heat would rise, the oil would melt, seep through the pores in the alabaster stone, and perfume the body. Now, this is 100% conjecture on my part. But I wonder, how would this woman of the night learn that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house? Was one of her clients there? Boy, that would raise the stakes of this scene a little bit, wouldn't it? But however she learns of it, she seeks out Jesus. And she stands behind Jesus and weeps, so much so that she wets his filthy feet with her tears. She lets down her hair, cleans his feet, kisses them, and perfumes them. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Two people in the presence of the same Jesus have two opposite reactions. Why? Because one is driven by fear, and one is driven by love. Back to Simon. Simon is a Pharisee. He is the top of the Jewish social order. He is a man of means, of power, of status, of influence, of respect, of authority. He is a learned man, having memorized Scripture from the time he was a child. A person like this, so he thinks, doesn't need Jesus because he doesn't need saving. He would like somebody to come and deal with Rome... But he doesn't need someone to come and deal with his sin. He doesn't need someone else's righteousness because he is self righteous. God is delighted to have someone like Simon on his team, for Simon keeps all of the commandments, he observes all of the feasts. Simon probably gives a bunch of money, which makes a ton of noise when it hits and rattles around the brass coffer in the temple, which attracts a lot of attention to himself. He has people around him that laugh way too hard at his jokes as they sit in his library, which smells of rich mahogany. Simon loves himself some religion. But can I tell you the one thing that makes religion tremble? Grace. Religion can only lead to one of two outcomes condemnation or self righteousness. Nothing in between, and not one of them leads to salvation. For this woman, it has led to nothing but shame and condemnation. For Simon, it has led to nothing but self-righteousness. But nothing threatens the self-righteousness of man like the grace of God. Look, self-righteousness attempts to put God into debt to you. It says to God, I've done everything right, now you owe me. It says, I did this, Therefore, I deserve that. But grace literally defined means to get something that you do not deserve. Now, remember our working definition for fear. Fear, a perceived negative external uncertainty which powerfully controls our actions. And the primary object of fear is ourselves. It leads us to self-preservation. When the self-righteousness of Simon encounters the beautiful grace of God through Jesus, the only possible outcome is fear which leads to condemnation of the woman and a rejection of Jesus. Why is fear the only possible outcome when self-righteousness meets grace? Because the grace of God through Jesus is an affront to self-righteousness. If I can summarize the grace-based salvation of Jesus Christ... It is this, you're not good enough, but Jesus is. You're not good enough, I am not good enough, but Jesus is. By definition, to accept Jesus means you must reject self-righteousness. And if you are self-righteous, you must reject Jesus. The grace of God through Jesus is amazing news beyond comprehension for someone that's led a sinful life like myself. But for someone like Simon, it is terrifying news. This self-righteousness, it does not have a category for Jesus or for this woman. It has no frameworks for either. So out of fear of rejection, it rejects. Look at Simon's conclusion. Verse 39, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Simon looks at the scene in front of him, and because of the fearful posture of his heart, he rejects Jesus and condemns the woman. And remember, fear powerfully controls our actions, but there's more to it. When Simon says that the woman is touching Jesus, the word in the Greek, the verb that he uses is hapto, which translates to setting something on fire. It carries with it an in intimacy, if you're getting what I'm saying here. So as she stands there sobbing, the only conclusion he can come to is that she is seducing Jesus. Because fear doesn't just control your external actions, it distorts your view of people. Self-righteousness leads to fear in the presence of grace, which then must reject Jesus and condemn others. And let me say it another way, perhaps for our cultural moment, the split second that you believe you are more deserving of the mercy and grace and love of God than someone else is the exact moment you stand in direct opposition to the mercy and grace and love of God. We'll get to more on that in a moment. Meanwhile, this unnamed woman This woman of the night, this woman of ill repute, this sinful woman, this uninvited guest is physically and emotionally and spiritually undone in the presence of Jesus. Just her physical presence at this dinner means she would have gone anywhere to be near him. She is kleio, which translates to sobbing. This is not a cute cry. This is the kind of weeping when you don't care who sees you because nothing else matters. These are not tears of sadness. These are tears of adoration. She lets her hair down, which was forbidden in the presence of men. It carried with it the same penalty as if she just took all her clothes off. In the fact that she is using this very expensive perfume, the tool of her trade, that which used to bring her shame, now to bring glory to Jesus, breaking it open, anointing his feet, kissing his feet. If this is not a picture of a repentant heart, shame and guilt evicted by the love and grace of Jesus, then I don't know what is. Remember our definition of love a powerful internal act of the will which positively controls all of our actions. The object of love is not ourselves, it is others leading away from self-preservation and to self-sacrifice. Can you imagine the cultural and social risks for this woman? Like, there is no turning back for her. In Simon's economy, this woman is 1,000 times more likely to be arrested than forgiven. But her love for Jesus drives her to Simon's house. She is putting herself, whatever dignity she may have left, on the cultural and social altar. And she stops at nothing to be in the presence of Jesus to show her adoration for him. A sinful woman like this, touching a rabbi like that, would have made the rabbi ceremonially unclean. But it isn't the woman that makes Jesus ceremonially unclean by touching his feet. It is Jesus that made the woman spiritually pure by touching her heart. Fear would have kept her in the shadows, but her love for Jesus brings her into the light of Jesus. She stands there weeping. She can can barely stand in the presence of such love and of grace. She is undone, and Simon can't stand it. Which brings me to one more point about fear. Fear makes you see only that which threatens you instead of that which God wants to transform. Fear will make you see only that which threatens you instead of that which God wants to transform. Simon's conclusion that Jesus is not sent from God is predicated upon his belief that a man of God would know that this woman is a sinner and therefore have nothing to do with her. But this sinful woman is exactly who Jesus left heaven for. Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It is exactly because he knew her that he was there. And still, no one in our story has spoken a word yet until now. Verse 39. Simon said to himself. Verse 40. Jesus answered him. (laughs) Remember, Jesus knows what you're thinking. Uh Knowing Simon's state of self-righteousness and condemnation, Jesus will have none of it. What was said, thought, felt, levied in private, will now be exposed by the scandalous gospel of grace. Two people owe a lender money. One owes 500 days wages, one owes 50. Neither can pay. And get the idea of a a, uh, working bankruptcy out of your head. This is total insolvency. Like, walk away. There's no hope whatsoever of paying this. The lender forgives both. Jesus asked Simon a question. Which of the forgiven debtors will love the lender more? Now at this point in the dinner, there would be pin drop silence. No one's moving. No dishes rattling in the kitchen. All conversation stopped. Stopped. All eyes fixed on Simon. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven, says Simon. And if the people at that dinner were not already shocked at the behavior of this woman and the allowance of it by Jesus, their jaws are about to hit the table. Know this, precious saints Jesus is not just your Savior, He is your defender. Look at verse 44. Then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon. Jesus turns towards the woman, but is still speaking to Simon. And with words of compassion and mercy and grace and love, Jesus probably looks at her in a way that no man ever has. "'Do you see this woman?' Jesus asks. "'You gave me no water. "'She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. "'You did not give me a kiss. "'She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. "'You did not give me oil. "'She perfumed my feet. "'Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven.'" as her great love has shown. Now please notice, Jesus never once positively affirms sin ever. He came to die for it, but he never once turned away a broken and repentant heart ever. Also notice, this woman's great love is in response to the forgiveness that she received. Her love did not earn her the forgiveness. It is the result of the forgiveness. Two people owed money, neither could pay. The lender forgave the debt. One a lot, one a little. The debtors loved one a lot, one a little. Which came first, the forgiveness or the love? The forgiveness. The love expressed comes after receiving grace and after receiving forgiveness. The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is not that you do good things, you go to church, you give some money, you're nice to people, and then God likes you and forgives you. No, the whole meaning, the whole point, the good news of the gospel is that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus says to this woman, the words of eternity Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman, who made her living being physically naked, comes to Jesus in love and is spiritually clothed in his purity. While Jesus spiritually undresses Simon the Pharisee who stands adorned in all of his righteousness, motivated by fear. But here is the staggering truth. That the same grace available and offered to this woman is available and offered to Simon the Pharisee, to you and to me. Back to the story that Jesus tells. There's two debtors in the story. Neither can pay. Yes, we know that the debt is forgiven. But debt doesn't just go away. Someone has to pay it. Sin doesn't just go away. Someone has to pay. Why? Why? Because God is holy, he is pure, he is without darkness, he is without sin, he is just, he will always and every time exact and uphold justice without exception. And he is also merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. In Jesus' story, it is the lender who cancels the debt of both. In Jesus' story, it is the lender who pays the debt. But in God's story, in reality, in history, it is Jesus who pays. For at the cross of Christ, all of God's wrath against our sins was placed on Jesus Justice, so that the perfect love of the Father could flow through to all who would believe, grace and mercy. As Paul wrote to the Colossians that God in Christ forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the record of debt which stood against us with its legal demands, this he took away, nailing it to the cross. He nailed to the cross my self-righteousness, my judgment of others, my fear of messy discipleship, my sin, my guilt, my shame, the jar around my neck, the skeletons in my closet, my pride, my ego, my greed, my gluttony, my selfishness, my lust, my anger, my entire corrupt nature. This he nailed to the cross. And let me remind you that the only time the nails were removed from a cross was when that which was nailed was dead. So those sins are gone. Those he nailed to the cross of Christ, freeing me from a life filled with fear for a life of love. Now today, as Pastor Kirk said, is the day in the church calendar that begins Holy Week. This marks the last march of our Lord and Savior to that old rugged cross. And the march began with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Now back in those days... When a king declared war on a territory, he would ride into that territory on a war horse, declaring the coming conquest. But when the war was over, when there was no fighting left, when the conquest had been made, that same king would ride into that same territory on a donkey announcing peace. On Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the universe, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, signaling peace between God and man, not through the conquest of man by the sword, but the conquest of sin on a cross. Jesus is not a guest in our house. He is the Lord of our life, and I believe more than ever what he desires And what the world needs is not a bunch of Christians running around convinced of other people's sins, but Christians first convicted of our own, knowing that when we are, Jesus meets us there with an ocean of grace and mercy and love. May we be a people marked by the Lord and Savior in whom we believe the grace we have received, and a life of sacrificial love to which we've been freed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word speaks of this ocean of love and forgiveness and mercy and grace that is made available to each one of us, and not just once, but day after day after day, we can throw ourselves at your feet and be met there not with condemnation for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus but we are met there with forgiveness with love with compassion with freedom we never have to fear God again when we are in you. We never have to fear our neighbor, our coworker, fear this culture. We don't have to fight it and battle it and go to war with it. Father, you call us to be salt and light in this dark world that so desperately needs you. But Father, I pray today that it would start with us. Father, that we would be reminded of your spirit That brings us this new life, not some better version of our old selves, but absolutely new. The old is gone, the new has come, and that we live not out of fear or self preservation or self righteousness, but we live out of self sacrifice, a life of love, truth, compassion without compromise, mercy. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that the words that I proclaim today were your words. Would your Holy Spirit carry them, implant them, not just in our minds, but also in our hearts, that we would be a people marked by grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.